Thank you for downloading this sermon from Grace Presbyterian Church. Grace is a church where people seeking more grace, more depth, and more community can start finding their way and sharing their gifts with the world. You can follow us online at graceforsufalls.org. Paul begins with a challenging word. Bless those who persecute you, he says, and then immediately follows up and says, bless and do not curse them. Because he understands that when he says, bless those who persecute you, you're prone to think, oh, Paul, no, no, you mean curse. You misspoke. And so he wants to assure you, no, I, I mean what I say, bless and do not curse them. That's the challenge that we're going to try to confront this morning. What it means to bless those who persecute us, what it means to love our enemies. Rejoice with those who rejoice, he continues. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Word of the Lord. Father, we ask that you would speak to us through these words, that you would teach us how to love our enemies, how to bless those who persecute us. In Christ's name we ask it. Amen. If you want to understand what it is Paul's talking about here, what he's getting at, you have to go back to the words of Jesus. You can't really understand what's happening in Romans 12 until you've gone back to the Sermon on the Mount and you've reconnected with Jesus' teaching there in Matthew chapter 5. If you go back in your Bible to Matthew chapter 5, and look in the Beatitudes, starting in verse 43, Jesus teaches the exact same thing that Paul is saying here, but Jesus goes on at a little more length. Jesus says, you've heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good, and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? You, therefore, must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. So when Paul tells us that we should bless those who persecute us, clearly he has in mind the words of Jesus here. And when Jesus says these things, he says them in a larger context and with a larger pattern that you see time and again in the Sermon on the Mount. Those words of Jesus, you have heard it said, But I say to you, you have heard it said, and then he'll quote some traditional wisdom or some teaching, and then he'll say, but I say to you, and change everything up. Now, in the Sermon on the Mount, there's a context in which Jesus does this. He's talking about specifically the law and the righteousness that comes from the law. He says this after he's already made the point that if you think he's come to abolish the law, you've gotten it wrong that the law cannot be abolished. There's no way to modify or soften the law. The law must be kept in perfection. And in saying that, he then begins this dialogue. He says, you've heard it said this, but I say to you that. He gives a contrast 
It's not a contrast between right and wrong. He's not saying you've heard this, but that's wrong. Here's what's really right. It's a contrast between good and perfect. Right? He quotes something that you've heard that is good, and then he contrasts it to something that's perfect. And the point is to show that even people who think they're keeping the law really aren't. That even people who think they are following the rules really aren't. Because more is required by the law than you realize. What is required is absolute perfection. So you've heard it said, do not commit murder, do not commit adultery. But I say to you that your anger is as good as murder, and that your lust is as good as adultery, and so on. The same thing that Jesus does in Luke 18 when he's talking to the rich young ruler, and the rich young ruler looking for the way of salvation asks Jesus, and Jesus says, oh, you've got to keep all the commandments. And the rich young ruler replies and says, all these I've kept from my youth. I'm good on that score. Is there anything left? And then Jesus says, fantastic, just go and sell all that you have and give it to the poor. And that leads to despair. But what's Jesus trying to do in that moment? He's trying to show this rich ruler that what he's trusting in for salvation, what he's trusting in to demonstrate his righteousness still isn't enough. It's still not good enough. And that's what Jesus is doing when he commands, love your enemies. Love your enemies. If you're trusting in your love to save you, if you're trusting that you are loving enough to be pleasing in the sight of God, that you have shown so much love to your fellow human beings that surely you must be acceptable Jesus says, much more is required of you than the love that you've shown. If you've loved your neighbor as yourself, if you have loved the people all around you, your family, you've loved your friends, it's not enough. Jesus says, you must love your enemy too. You must love your persecutor too. The path of love is much harder than you realize. These are words that If you've grown up in the church or if you've been introduced to Christianity, you understand, oh, we're supposed to love our enemies. We say things like that as if it's commonplace and an easy thing to do. Oftentimes, you'll hear people say, well, I don't have any enemies. That's not even a hard one for me because I don't have any enemies. That's not a demonstration of how good the people who say those things are. It's a demonstration of how deceived we tend to be. We think we have no enemies that we think that we love as we ought to, but we don't. So Paul in Romans 12 is going to teach us once again how to love, but now he's going to teach us how to love your enemy and where the strength to love your enemy actually comes from. Once he's done that, we'll pause for a moment and consider what happens when we don't love our enemies. What happens when we fail to do what Jesus says we must So how do you love your enemy? How do you love and bless those who persecute you? The way to love your enemy, Paul says, is to live peaceably with all. To live peaceably with all. When Paul says, bless those who persecute you, bless and do not curse them, he demonstrates that he understands how difficult this teaching is. 
that when we say bless your persecutors, what we are more likely to do is curse them. And so he emphasizes with that repetition, no, 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 don't do what comes naturally. Do what I'm telling you to do instead, which is the opposite of what comes naturally. Jesus, in Matthew 5, when he says this, he he gives you the, the traditional wisdom. The traditional wisdom, what you've heard said is, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. To love your neighbor and hate your enemy, that's the way we tend to do these things, to understand them. We love those who love us, and we hate those who hate us. That just seems normal. But sometimes people, for the best of intentions, will try to make Jesus sound cool and hip and, and relevant by saying that Jesus was countercultural. And you could read these words of Jesus and say, well, that's very countercultural of Jesus. But to describe it as countercultural doesn't really go far enough. Jesus isn't pushing back against culture, he's pushing back against nature. It's not that in some human cultures, People hate their enemies, and in some human cultures, they love them. In all human cultures, we love our neighbors and we hate our enemies because our cultures are made in the image of our nature. And at our best, we aspire to love our neighbors and to hate our enemies. Jesus here is pushing back against the way of the world. Now, that may not seem right at first because when you listen to what the world says, you're not surrounded by these messages that encourage you to hate, right? It's just the opposite. The world doesn't advocate hate. It advocates love constantly. Love, tolerance, acceptance. This is what the world says. But what it practices is a little different than what it professes. The world says, love what is different. But what it means is, be one of us, and then we will love you. There's only so much difference the world can love. The world says, hate who we hate, and then we will love you. But Christ does things the other way around. Jesus loves you and then bids you to love what he loves. Jesus doesn't say, hate who I hate, and then I will love you. He also doesn't say, I will love you, and then you will learn to hate who I hate. Instead, Jesus says, I will love you, and then you will love your enemies. I will love you, and then you will bless those who curse you, which turns nature upside down, turns wisdom upside down. What Jesus means in the book of Revelation when he says, Behold, I'm making all things new. I am reshaping the way of the world. In the world that Jesus is making, the way to respond to hate is with love. The way to respond to persecution is with prayer and blessing. Loving your enemies means being peace with all. When Paul says to bless your persecutors, he goes on and gives more instruction And the other things he says, they're not just random thoughts. They all go together into a larger structure, creating this kind of idea of the environment in which it's possible to love your enemies. There's a larger pattern. It says, rejoice with those who rejoice, weep with those who weep. People who love their enemies are people who share in the experiences of those around them. 
We're not aloof, not divided from those experiences, but who enter into them. Right? We don't rejoice at the suffering of others. We weep at the suffering of others. We don't feel frustrated or angry at the blessing of others. We rejoice at the blessing of others. In other words, love, true love, is in the world. It is in the world, emphasizing the importance that we empathize with the larger world around us. We enter into its experience. We are part of this larger world. And we're called to pursue harmony in that world. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty or proud, but associate with the lowly, the weak, the powerless. Never be wise in your own sight. So we, if we are going to be people of love, have to be people who pursue harmony with those around us, but particularly with the powerless, with the lowly. That of conflict with those who are different from us, we pursue harmony, and that requires a humbling of self. Not being too wise in your own sight. When Paul says associate with the lowly, the language that he uses here is language that suggests uh, be influenced by the cares of the lowly. The same wording that, that Paul uses when he talks about other people being overcome by the cares of this world, like carried along by the cares of this world, in that sense, that's negative. You shouldn't be carried along by the cares of this world. But here he means it positively. You should be carried along by the cares of the lowly. It should matter to you what happens, what's in the interest, what blesses the powerless, the least of these. In an environment like that, it becomes possible to see your enemies differently and to love them, to bless them. So we pursue harmony, especially with the powerless. Then Paul says, repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. In other words, disrupt karma. Disrupt karma. For Christians, what goes around doesn't come around, not if we can help it. But the people who do wrong to us and deserve some sort of payback, deserve to have the, the scales balanced in some way, that if we can prevent it, we will. We don't want to see them receive the penalty for the sins that they've committed against us. Rather, we want good to be repaid to those who have sown evil. It's only when you you have that longing within you that you can cry out as Jesus does, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do, as the martyr Stephen does in imitation of Jesus. Only then can you speak the words and mean them that, that bring blessing to those who are destroying you, that bring blessing to those who are destroying what and who you love. Only when we're determined to interrupt karma, as it were. And then finally, if possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. I think that command to live peaceably with all is really the summary of the whole idea. In order to love your enemies, which is the highest expression of Christian love, disinterested, self-sacrificing love, in order to do that, you have to seek a life of peace with all around you. 
no matter who they are, no matter what they've done, no matter what they've done to you, you must desire to live at peace with them. That's the linchpin. Love pursues peace with all. Family, friend, neighbor, enemy, persecutor. Love wants to be at peace with all of them. Peace with all is the only way to love your enemies. It may not be in your power to make peace. Paul says, as much as it lies with you, as much as it's possible for you, live peaceably with all, recognizing it's not in your hands. You cannot control how people respond to your effort to be at peace. So it's outside your power to make peace, but Christ-like love seeks peace, whether it makes peace or not. So it's not try to live peaceably, but if you can't, then fight fire with fire. Try to be at peace with other people, but if they won't make peace with you, then you make them sorry that they refused your kind offers. None of that. Constantly striving to live at peace with those who don't deserve peace. Striving to live in peace with those who are at war with us. The question naturally arises for a Christian, if you take these words seriously, if you want to live as Christ commands, as Paul reinforces, then in every circumstance, in every trial and tribulation, whenever you find yourself on the receiving end of persecution, the question that has to arise is, how can I be at peace now? How can I find peace now in these circumstances? How can I forgive and love those who do not want my forgiveness and have rejected my love? There's only one way to do that. There's only one way to live that way. And it's if we are able to live as if the not yet is already. We've talked about this before, but I think it's worth repeating. It's only by living as if the promises that Christ has made are already good, that the promises that Jesus has made have already been fulfilled. When your hope is such, when your confidence is such, when your faith is such, that you're willing to live as if everything Jesus has promised is already fulfilled, then and only then can you love your enemies. Essentially, we must live in this world as if it were already the next. Only then can we be at peace in this life. The strength to love your enemies comes from the Spirit helping you to live as if the not yet is already here. Now, when we use those terms already and not yet, quick refresher, what we're talking about there is eschatology. Sometimes we say, you know, end times. Like this age versus the age to come. Right? This age, the, the time we're living in now, that's the already. That's the way things are currently. But constantly, the Bible is pointing us to what has not yet come, the age to come, the reality of that age, that, that reign of Christ. And, and what I'm saying here is that The calling on our lives is to live as if this age was playing by the rules of the age to come. Start living now as if we were there and not here. And then it becomes possible to bless those who curse us. 
But don't be afraid when we talk about eschatology or end times. A lot of times in church, when we talk about that stuff, things get really dark. We start thinking about the apocalypse, the end of the world, that sort of thing. The end times in Scripture, the Bible's optimistic about the end. The Bible is uh, very positive about what happens at the end of the world. Because at the end of the world, the world is remade. At the end of this world, the world to come is inaugurated in all of its glory. So don't be afraid to look forward to the end of this world because it is the time when God's promises will be fulfilled and the world and our humanity will be restored. At the end of the age, Jesus, the righteous branch from Jesse's roots, will bring about peace the peace that we long for. The prophet Isaiah, you look in Isaiah chapter 11, describes what that peace will look like. He gives us this beautiful vision that has become for us kind of a a way of thinking about peace and what it would look like. Isaiah says, The wolf shall dwell with the lamb, and the leopard shall lie down with the young goat, and the calf and the lion and the fattened calf together, and a little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze, their young shall lie down together, and the lion shall eat straw like the ox. The nursing child shall play over the hole of the cobra, and the weaned child shall put his hand on the adder's den. Shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain. The earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Now that has not yet taken place. That's stuff that if you tried to do that now, you might really get yourself into trouble. So we tell ourselves. But Paul is saying that with that vision of the world to come in mind, let's start living as if it were already here. Let's start behaving as if the peace that we long for had already been made. As much as it lies with us, let us live in peace with all as if the peace that has been promised is already Upon us. Our enemies may live as if the rules of this life have power. Paul says, Let us live as if the reality of the next life is here. How do you do that? When I was a young man, I spent a couple of weeks visiting the U.S. Army in Germany. And because I'd grown up fascinated by war and conflict and that sort of thing, I was really excited to get to be there. But you know, it was a little disappointing because in the two weeks that I spent, no U.S. Army soldiers shot any Germans. No Germans were attacked. No bombs were thrown. There was no violence. In fact, all of the soldiers I talked to liked being in Germany and thought Germans were really great. How is that possible? How can such a thing happen? Well, it's actually kind of easy because I went in 1991, not 1941. The enemies who'd been at each other's throats 50 years earlier were friends. They were living side by side at peace with one another. And the solution, it turns out, was time. Just time. 1941 was like another age. And 1991 felt like the dawn of a new one. 1991, we were talking about the end of history With the end of the Cold War, there was an optimism to everything, and people who had been enemies were now friends. It wasn't just Germans that U.S. soldiers had a new infatuation with. It was Soviets as well, and that was really strange. It was like we were living in in a world we had dreamed of but never imagined. 
to take place. It's as simple as that. To live in this age as if you're already in the next. Now, I realize when I say it's as simple as that, it's not simple at all. Not simple at all, but it can be done by the power of the Spirit. Living in your own strength, you can't do it. Living in your own strength, the best you can hope to do is to love your neighbor and to hate your enemy. Good people, the best people among us, the, the, the ones we point to as the best examples of righteousness, the reason why they're so good is because they're so good at loving their neighbors, loving their neighbors, loving those who are like them, loving those who they understand and relate to and empathize with. But what about the rest? Those who aren't like us, those who we cannot understand, well, those, even good people, demonize. They're the enemy, and it's okay to hate and despise them. They're unacceptable. They're deplorable. Good people demonstrate that they're good in part by not sharing in the experience of the enemy, by not being in harmony with the enemy, by expressing satisfaction when karma catches up with the enemy, by refusing to make peace with the enemy. And people like that, who love their neighbors selflessly and hope that everybody else gets what's coming to them, we hold them up and say, those are good people. If there's anybody God should approve of, it is surely them. But Jesus says it's not enough. It's not enough to love that way. But the only alternative to that kind of goodness, that kind of moralism, kind of the world praises, the only alternative is the peacemaking, humbling power of the Holy Spirit. You cannot love your enemies. You cannot bless those who curse you, but the Spirit working in you can. So as a Christian, how do we respond to this call to love our enemies? We respond by pursuing peace with all and praying for it, longing for it, forcing ourselves to bless our enemies in the hope that the Spirit will work within us, praying that the Spirit will work, will humble you, give you a taste of the world to come so that you can see with the eyes of Christ and let go of the resentments of the present. Let go of your idea of recompense and justice, of who needs to be hurt because they've hurt you, and to live as if Christ has come. In the face of every challenge, every persecution, we ask, how can I be at peace with them? How can I make peace? But what happens when it doesn't work? What happens when you fail to love your enemy? Well, when you fail to love your enemy, the love of Christ fulfills the law on your behalf. If you really work hard, you might be able to curb your anger problem and therefore murder less in your heart. You might be able to curb your lust and thus tamp down your adultery problem. But you have to do more than curb your hate fulfill the words of Christ here. Actual love is required, love of your enemy. And what if you don't feel that? What if you can't do that? What happens when you fail to bless your persecutor? What happens when you fail to repay evil with good and instead answer evil with evil? What happens then? Well, the same thing that happens whenever we sin. 
The same thing that happens in every other example when we fall short of perfection, that's where the love of Jesus intervenes. Jesus didn't really think that the rich young ruler was a perfect and righteous man and and only needed to do one thing in order to please God and enter into heaven apart from grace. Instead, what Jesus was doing was putting his finger on on the Savior that that man was trusting in and showing to him that it wouldn't be enough to save him, that he could not please the God he had chosen because the God he had chosen demanded more than he could possibly give. That's what Jesus was doing. He was encouraging despair in a sense. He was encouraging this man to feel despair in the God that he had chosen. When people hear the word of the gospel, interestingly, in the Bible and also uh, in the present day, when they hear the gospel call, oftentimes when they respond in not so many words, they tell you who their God is. You trust in Jesus? That's the gospel? Great. Let me tell you what I'm trusting in. I'm a good person. I do more good than evil. I think a loving God would, would accept me, all that sort of thing. They're telling you their plan of salvation. Jesus is fine for you, great, but I'm keeping the law. I'm being a good person. Which Jesus says, well, if morality is going to save you, you're going to have to be a lot more moral than you are. You're going to have to keep a lot more rules than you seem to be keeping. You're really letting yourself off the hook and still expecting the law to save you. And he pushes you until you recognize that you cannot possibly meet the demands of the Savior that you have chosen. The result is despair. Despair in Luke 18, not only does this rich ruler go away heartbroken because he has a lot of stuff and he doesn't want to sell it, but the disciples who witness this don't witness it and say to themselves, it's good to see the 1% get what's coming to them. They feel despair as well. When they witness this, their response to Jesus is, whoa, 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 wait a second. Then who can be saved? If you're saying that this guy's not good enough, then who can be saved? They, too, despair. And interestingly, Jesus doesn't say to them, oh, no, no, don't worry. It's, it's not as hard as I'm making it out to be. Just chill. It's, it's pretty easy. I'll explain it. Jesus actually responds and says, yeah, you're right. It's impossible apart from a miracle. Specifically, what he says in verse 27, what is impossible with man is possible with God. Something more is required than your righteousness. Something more is required than your love if you will be saved. The real gospel, the real good news is not if you love enough, then you will be saved. If you somehow find the strength to love even your enemies, then God will be so pleased. He'll throw open the doors of the kingdom to you. Oftentimes, this is how we act. We're constantly pointing to people in the world people who don't know Christ or profess Christ, but are really good people. And we're saying to ourselves, I just can't imagine that a loving God wouldn't approve of him. I just can't imagine that a loving God could condemn her. Because we're assuming what most people assume, that it's possible to earn your salvation. Not by works, but surely by love. By love, which is just another kind of works righteousness. That's not the gospel. Jesus says, I've loved you, and now, unlovable as you are, you're worthy to love me and to enter my kingdom. Jesus keeps the law, 
and earns the righteousness and in love gives that righteousness to us so that when we fail in love, something similar takes place. We fail to love as perfectly as we should. The good news is that Jesus has loved perfectly, not only us, but our enemies as well. Jesus expands the commandments so that we have a consciousness of our failure, that we see that we haven't loved our enemies, we haven't loved the way that we should, that that was required of us. As a result, the only hope we have is the grace of Jesus Christ. Jesus has loved for us. This Jesus has obeyed for us. And Jesus' perfection, not our own, is our salvation. And now, because of that love, Jesus has given us the Spirit. So the Spirit working in us can help us not to be perfect in this life, but by the power of the Spirit to live in this life more and more as if the perfection of the life to come is already here. Thank you for listening. You can find more sermons from Grace and information about joining us for worship by visiting our website at graceforsufalls.org. We also invite you to visit the iTunes store and subscribe to the Sermons of Grace podcast. <laughs>